This episode of the Sportsman's Nation is brought to you by Outdoor Edge and their complete lineup of replaceable and fixed blade knives and game processing kits. Now, in my bag this year, I had the Razor Pro Saw Combo Kit. It comes in a very compact handy carrying case and one handle has the replaceable blade knife and the gutting blade the other handle has the saw that comes with it so I use the saw to split the pelvis and I use the gut hook to open up the cavity and the blade to start cutting all the stuff out right so uh, it makes cleaning a deer very simple very easy and the the knife is sharp and uh, if you've ever had to gut a deer with a dull knife, we all know how much that sucks. So um, take a look at the Razor Pro Saw Combo Kit and uh, head on over to OutdoorEdge.com and enter the discount code NATION30. That's NATION30 for 30% savings on your purchase. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith and Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. All right, Frank, take it away. Hey, guys, I have a real... uh... Real special guest today. It's a real treat for me to have on, or for us, excuse me, to have on Dr. Brett Collier from Louisiana State University. Um, Brett and I attended grad school together at the University of Arkansas. He was working on his PhD there doing deer research, and I was uh, working on my master's degree on doing prey chicken stuff. And uh, we spent mornings in a duck blind together. And a real, a real fun time we had was when he came out to help me trap chickens in the Flint Hills of Kansas, and we got to shoot a few gobblers uh, in the in the downtime. So um, that was a lot of fun. So it's a real treat to have Brett today. So Brett, thanks for thanks for being on. Oh, Frank, I'm I'm excited to be here, and and I I still have that fan from that uh, that gobbler we shot over the fence, yep. um, hanging yep. up in the office. I'm looking I'm looking at it on the wall right now. So. Great, great. That was, that was a fun hunt. That was a that fun was. Hunt. It was a lot of crawling yeah. on our bellies, if my memory serves. <laughs> we did. Yes. Whatever it takes to get them. Yeah. So, so look at us. I mean, um, you're a, you've become a, a, a professional, world-renowned turkey um, researcher, and I'm. <laughs> <laughs> and look at me. I'm with these clowns here at Landon Legacy. So, <laughs> our. Uh, uh, I would say we're fun. both doing good. <laughs> yeah, so. I was just joking around. I I, I love uh, what I'm doing here with these guys, and it's just a, just having a little fun with them. So, um, like Adam said, we are going to um, um, have a have a discussion. Uh, it's going to talk about uh, wild turkey, specifically wild turkey research, which you have been in the forefront of. Um, before we dive into that, as I mentioned before, you you got your PhD at the University of Arkansas doing deer research. So between between getting your PhD and now, how how did your research evolve into wild turkeys? No, it's a yeah, that's a a good question. So um, you know, I had done a, a little bit of work with basically hunter economics during my my master's work and had the opportunity to go to the University of Arkansas to basically do modeling, you know, statistical modeling 
um, and look at uh, kind of what hunters wanted from a deer management perspective. And then we worked with the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission, uh, David Kremitz, who was both of our advisors, right. um, and I, and, and looked at um, the potential implications of uh, antler restrictions, which were based on a, a master's thesis that came out of, I want to say, the University of Georgia, um, to kind of look at what the impacts were. And what had happened, and it's a weird, it's a weird way to get into turkey and upland game bird ecology, but I would go to the deer study group meetings every year um, mm-hmm. as a graduate student, and I became friends with, uh, you know, a whole bunch of the deer scientists, but also uh, Roel Lopez. Um, which was a deer scientist who worked on key deer. Mm-hmm. And his um, advisor was a professor named uh, Dr. Nova Silva at right. Texas A&M University. So I was about a year and a half from graduating and, and realized that the, the deer field is, is oversaturated with people that are slapping collars on deer and following them around. Um right. And I didn't see, I guess, fortuitously, I didn't see much of a future there. And I wanted to kind of broaden my experiences. Um, so I had asked Nova if there'd be an opportunity uh, to come text A&M and work on upland game birds with him. And my original hope, because he was doing a bunch of lesser prairie chicken stuff mm-hmm. um, out in uh, uh, kind of West uh, Texas of the Panhandle that I could tag on there. But um Fortunately, uh, Nova and another faculty member, uh, Dr. Marcus Peterson, who uh, was at Texas A&M at the time, kind of took me on to uh, kind of be the postdoc for uh, an ongoing turkey project that they had uh, going on in the hill country of Texas. Um, So I came in and and left uh, Arkansas and headed down there and basically started working with uh, a couple of graduate students. uh, doing radio telemetry and, and data analysis and chasing turkeys around in the hill country. Um, without getting overly long-winded, that kind of kicked off today because mm-hmm. uh, that that facilitated a relationship with a, a bunch of, of biologists, uh, probably most importantly, um, the three that were probably most important was uh, uh, Vernon Bevel, who was, you know, one of the, the you know, guys that helped start the National Wild Turkey Federation, a, a longtime upland game bird biologist uh, across the southeastern United States. Um, and uh, Jason Harden, who's currently the turkey biologist with Texas Parks and Wildlife, and uh, Robert Perez, who's the mm-hmm. upland game bird program sure. leader um, with Texas Parks and Wildlife. And the relationships that I built with them kind of kick-started you know, in academia, you're always looking for the next project. And mm-hmm. they were really interested in turkeys. So we just kind of continually kept adding new projects and working on new projects in Texas, primarily on Rio Grande. Um, And then that, I mean, basically kind of flowered into full on turkey research for me professionally starting in about 2004, but then continuing on until today. I mean, I still have projects where I work with Texas Parks and Wildlife right now. So mm-hmm. I guess that's the that's the the short version. And then the only thing I'll add is in uh, 2014, I took a, a faculty position at LSU. And yeah. I, I left Texas A&M University where I was at for uh, Louisiana State University. And that's where I'm at today. So 
Um, I, I think that covers it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. You know, it's funny how um, how paths cross. So, so our path has crossed here in, in this interview, and and we were talking before we got uh, on air about how we had kind of lost touch for a while. But, but, but it's funny how paths cross, and and how these different disciplines intermingle. So you mentioned Nova Silvi; he was instrumental in in prairie chicken research across the country, from from Kansas and greater prairie chickens uh, and lesser prairie chickens in Texas. He was very influential in my career in terms of, of, of the, the stuff that I was working on with greater prairie chickens. Robert Lopez, or excuse me, Robert Perez in Texas, I worked with him on the National Bob White Conservation Initiative. So these, these fields really, really intermingle and, and people that are influential in one field become very influential in another, in another species, you know? So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's really, it's really work. fortunate, you know, Frank, that we, it's it's nice because even though people think of the wildlife community as being a a really really big community and we are right i mean we're we're range you know united states wide you know diverse um everybody knows everybody and sure. if you don't if you don't know them individually you know someone who works with them and 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 that makes for a real nice kind of well knit community of people so right right, right. Well, one of the things I wanted to, to, to talk about, and this goes back to your work at, at Texas A&M, is you were really a pioneer in developing small GPS telemetry receivers for use on birds as small as wild turkeys. So to back up, most GPS receiver or, or telemetry work prior to this was done on, on larger animals because of battery size. But but you were really a, kind of on the, the leading edge of getting of getting this this technology small enough to be to be used on birds like like wild turkeys and now they're even using them on prey chickens so so birds as small as chickens so so how did that how did that sort of happen and how has this gps technology really transformed what we know about wild turkeys no that's yeah um so it's it's an interesting story and and like all interesting stories it starts with alcohol in a bar um <laughs> So um, I was actually at uh, the Wildlife Society meeting in Monterey, California. Wow! And uh, yeah, a good. And I was I was given a presentation. I had several of my graduate students out there, and um, I, I ran into a very good friend of mine. Uh, his name is Chris Kohani, um, and Chris is is well known within the telemetry world. Um, I mean, he's he's been in the the radio telemetry field for decades is probably if not one of the most intelligent people the most intelligent person when it comes to application of radio telemetry on wildlife and and chris and i have been friends for for years and we actually were were sitting in a bar um overlooking monterey bay um and we were watching the uh the otters play mm -hmm. And he showed me, um, he was working for a company out of um, New Zealand at the time. And he showed me a tag that was about the size of a postage stamp, the the, the heading on it, that they were going to put on, I want to say seals. Um, it could have been sea lions. Uh, I'm a little fuzzy, but some sort of aquatic kind of pet. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and I looked at it and I said, that's pretty small. Why couldn't we put that on a turkey? And Chris and I sat in the bar. Um, overlooking the sea otters and on a napkin drew a preliminary design for a GPS tag for a turkey. 
Mm -hmm. Um, so, so I took the idea, um, back to Texas with me and, and I called Vernon Bevel, um, who was the, the program lead there at Texas Parks and Wildlife. And I went to his office, drove over to Austin and I, and I, I sat down with Vernon and I've always had a great relationship with Vernon. And I said to him, and I was very blunt, I was like, I got an idea. It's going to, I need you to give me $13,427 roughly. Okay, wow. um, yeah. I mean, and, and it's probably not going to work. <laughs> okay, but I want, and I just want to, and you, people heard this, Jason Harden and Perez, you know, know the story. And uh -huh. I said, it's probably not going to work. But if it works, Vernon, we're going to change how we study the wild turkey. So, so Vernon said, you know what, I'm willing to take a chance on you. Um, and he gave basically me, the Texas A&M, the money to work with Chris and the company he worked for, um, which was Seartrack at the time. And, and, and they're currently low tech. They're, they're, they've yes. integrated into like low tech now um, to develop kind of the first turkey tag. And, uh, and relative to what we're using now, it was a horrible thing. I mean, it was boxy. It was, uh, uh, I mean, you know, it was just ugly. Sure. Um, so what we did was we, we took this GPS unit and we caught a hen on a, uh, a female on a private ranch in South Texas that was owned by Buddy Temple. Um, Mr. Temple and, and his ranch manager, Robert Sanders, were kind enough to kind of let us do turkey work on their property, a beautiful piece of property down there. Um, and um, we put this, this tag on this bird, we let it go, and we were just going to follow this bird until it died and then pick up the tag and see what happens. Sure. And maybe 70 or 80 days later, the bird got predated, which, you know, it, it happens occasionally. Yeah. And we picked up the tag, and at that point, we realized that we could actually basically track how a, a turkey moved through the landscape and create effectively a, at that time, I mean, this would have been 2008, um, a very coarse digital map of where that bird went and how fast it went there and how much time it spent there. Mm -hmm. So based on the one turkey that that was the first hen, um, we updated our design, and I, I won't go into all the details for the, you know, the listeners. I'm sure they don't care, but we updated the design. Um, we we tested it again on a larger study in 2009, where we put out about 20 of them, and then um, kind of over time, as with technology, it always advances. Sure. Um, our, our original designs uh, for these tags meant that um, you, you kind of had to get the tag back in hand to get the data off, right? Mm -hmm. we, did, we didn't have a mechanism like we do now with GSM and, and you know, UHF uh, uh, frequencies that we can just suck the data right off the tag without getting it in hand. So, so there was lots of time spent trying to recapture birds and lots of effort. Mm -hmm. And then I want to say in about 2014, um, we were working with a, a company called Lowtech. Um, which is, is where Chris had moved over to at the time. Um, and um, we, we had, were working with them and they developed the ability for us to do basically what would be considered a remote download, right? Mm -hmm. um, where you go out in the woods, you get within a few hundred yards of the bird and um, you can basically pop up an antenna and type in a frequency and mm -hmm. it sucks the, the GPS data off the tag and onto your little handheld computer, and then you can move that over to your regular computer and open it right up. Um, so I'm, I'm sitting here right now in front of my computer, and uh, one of the graduate students in Georgia is emailing me data files that they've used this technology on right now. Um, I mean, my email is filling up. So, you know, and, and 
as with anything, and, and you you alluded to this earlier, Frank, and please jump in here anytime if I just sure. get rambling. But um, no, you're doing well. Um, as with anything, as technology advances, things get smaller. I mean, I can remember having a bagged phone in my yeah. truck, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and now I'm talking to you on an iPhone, um, sitting on top of my laptop, and the the you know the tech basically the equivalency here is the technology that's in the iPhone that people use for you know whatever they're driving and that kind of stuff sure that's the same generally speaking technology that's used in a GPS unit for a turkey right I mean figures out where it's at but you get to charge your iPhone every night mm-hmm. um, we put a we have to put a tag on the back of a bird let the bird go. The tag has to last for at least a year, bare minimum, mm-hmm. um, and not get damaged by rain, by flying in and out of the tree, by moving through brush, anything like that. Um, so we generally target with these guys about a year's worth of, of high-resolution data. And turkeys move yeah, ballpark on average around three meters a minute. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes it's slower, sometimes it's faster. So I think you can, you know, generally think about that, that, you know, they'll probably move a couple hundred meters in an hour, right? Just kind of right. wandering around. Yeah. Um, so we collect data right now using these GPS units on birds, um, basically from about five o'clock in the morning. So we know they're still on the roost till about eight o'clock at night, which is about dark. So they go back up to the roost again. And then we take a point about midnight mm-hmm. just so we know where the roost site is. And from each bird, we get basically a daily map of everywhere that bird went. Um, now, what's cool about this is the technology is continually getting smaller. Um, so the original tags we tested were 114 or 116 grams. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, we're at about 80. And wow. you had alluded to some that we, you guys have put on a, a prairie grouse, um, you know, that uh, that do work and that, you know, collect spatial data. We, there's actually, there are GPS tags that, um, are used on bobwhite quail. Um, uh-huh. we've done some work on those, but at the end of the day, um, with technology like this, everything is battery life. And, and I won't go any farther into that, but, um, basically the smaller the battery is, the f- less data you're able to get. And we think we've hit a pretty happy median where we're at right now. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been some tests that we've done with solar because lots of people in the waterfowl world use uh, solar technology to um, basically recharge batteries in t- inside tags. Right. And unfortunately, they don't work for turkeys very well because turkeys don't sit in the sun all day. Right. Um, right. They're, they're underneath canopy cover. They're in the woods. So the tags tend to lose their charge really quick and they don't have the ability to maintain uh, a minimum charge. So so hopefully in the future, that's going to be an option, especially for some of our more Western birds mm-hmm. um, that, that exist. You know, think think Merriam's and Goulds and, and probably Rio's in some areas um, right. where they spend more time in the sun. Um, right. But I don't think we're going to ever see that for Eastern birds where solar tags are going to be super super utilized but the technology is really cool so and and it really has changed how we thought about the bird too absolutely it's fascinating and you mentioned the resolution and i and i think back to the research that we just completed on bob whites and and the stuff that i was doing in graduate school with with greater prairie chickens and, and most telemetry work now the resolution is so coarse because technicians are out collecting one or two locations per day 
So as we see a, a Bob White, as it's moving around its landscape or its, or, or its home range, the resolution is so much more coarse than what you guys are picking up. It's going to be a game changer when Bob White research is done solely with GPS transmitters, because then we'll know we'll have that fine scale that that um, that we just don't have. So that, yeah. that's really one of the one of the great fascinating things with this GPS is just the scale of movement that, that one can pick up. Yeah. And, you know, what's really cool about it is and we've done I mean, obviously, we've done all kinds of tests. We've collected data every five minutes. Um, all the way up to collecting data, you know, one data point every four hours. And, um, and we've done some work because one of the biggest things, it's, it's, it's supply and demand, right? Um, mm-hmm. We've only got so much battery supply, but we want all, we demand all the data we can get. Um, so our kind of best estimate of what the appropriate level of resolution for a turkey is about an hour. Um, for, for a Bob White, um, you know, some of the stuff that we've done in, in North Texas, uh, also working with Robert Perez and, and uh, Kevin Moat, who's the district leader up in District 3, um, uh, we did some work on testing GPS units out on quail. And they don't require as intense a schedule mm-hmm. um, because they don't move as fast, right? right. Um, right. And, and they don't move as far. But what's, and, but what's really most, like the most tangible take home from this technology is is not the fact that we can look at dots on the map. Um, it's the fact that using all the biological data and information we've collected on all these species, we can start tying the dots to behaviors that mm-hmm. the organisms are using. So how quail or turkeys are good are both good examples here, right? How these birds respond to management that we put on the ground. Yes. Fire. Um, you know, any sort of prescribed burning, any sort of timber thinning, any sort of, you know, upland grass restoration project, um, riparian corridor management. Historically, we didn't have the resolution as managers and, and, and researchers to really get at what a critter does behaviorally whenever we at trying to manage for that critter to do something. And, mm-hmm. and I think that that's the really big next step that most most states and, and most, um, you know, private conservationists, you know, private landowners and managers are going to really be interested in is, you know, if we do this, what is our expectation of what that bird's going to do? And, and now we've kind of reached the point where we could start to measure that. That's that's going to be game changer. You're, you're exactly right, because that's that's what we need to know as managers are. Is the management that we're doing is it being effective? I mean, we can look at things like population, you know, surveys over time and, and make some broad inferences, but but to really be able to tie movements to behavior is some really cool stuff. So and and that's where most of the you know that's where most of at least my science that I that I do day to day is kind of moved. To be honest, I mean, we, you know, we <laughs> I mean. We're in a, my, my colleague, Mike, that I work with all the time uh, at University of Georgia, Mike Chamberlain, um, mm-hmm. you know, he and I talk about this. We struggle with this every day in that we're at a point right now in our professional careers that if we were to stop collecting data tomorrow, we could not make it through all the data that we've collected so far <laughs> with, with all the questions that we want to ask. Sure. Sure. Um, because it's just it's it's time. It's just time. So, yeah. But yeah, but that's that's basically the story of the the how we got 
turkey GPS. So. Right. Well, it's a fascinating story. I'm, I'm glad you told it. Uh, let's uh, let's move forward here a little bit and let's talk about some current issues. Uh, and, and I think most listeners understand that eastern subspecies of wild turkey, the populations across the the eastern United States are declining. I mean, that's that's pretty yes. well known. Um, According to your research, what's your finding? What are some of the broad factors in your mind that your that, that your research is informing you? What are some of the broad factors that, that's resulting in this decline? Sure. So you know, if so, t- taking a quick step back, um, you know, restoration of the wild turkey is, has long been the the success story in the United States, right? That's right. That's um, right. It's been. I mean, the the state wildlife agencies. The, the invention of the rocket net, um, the state wildlife agencies working together, you know, with their with you know collaborators like National Wild Turkey Federation to help facilitate the the transport and the movements of turkeys. You know, it, it's basically the primary example of you know supplemented migration. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's it's moving birds around. Um, well, what happens? You know, it, what has happened is we're dealing with landscapes at the broad scale that have changed since the 1980s. Um, you know, we, we have all the all the standard, and I'm not the guy that, you know, crows about the bad stuff, so we'll talk about mm-hmm. the good stuff. We have all the standard yeah. issues with landscape fragmentation, you know, um, increased uses of, of herbicides, less use of fire on the landscape, changing um, forestry management practices um, on both private and public lands. Um, you know, uh, th- there's a host of issues that go into to what impacts turkey populations. But it's important for listeners to know that, you know, typically when you put turkeys out in a place where there aren't turkeys, the population like growth rates really fast mm-hmm. over over a short window. And then it tends to kind of slow down a little bit. And it's you know, usually these populations stabilize. And these are basically called, you know, they tend to couch them in the idea of density dependence and density independent effects. But but basically, you know, you can only pack so many critters in a particular area is sure. the easiest way to explain it. Um, right. What we've seen is over time, and, and I'll, just keeping it clear, let's say the last 30, 20 to 30 years, mm-hmm. um, the, the primary indices that we use to monitor wild turkey populations is basically the number of poults, so the number of baby turkeys to mm-hmm. the number of females, and it's called the poult per hen ratio, yeah, um, PPH, yep, mm-hmm. um, and almost all of our states in the southeast have seen at least some evidence of long-term declines in the poult per hen ratio. Um, mm-hmm. Now, concomitant with that, um, harvest in many states has gone up, as have turkey hunter licenses sold, mm-hmm. and, you know, effectively the number of turkey hunters. Now, and, and that waxes and wanes, obviously, you know, um, some some states have turned over and are showing a few less in harvest. Some are still going up. Um, so, so I'm broadly for, for the listeners, I'm broadly categorizing the Eastern United States right now, um, because I'm not, I'm not going to try and get it to a state by state level, but generally speaking, hunting effort has gone up. And and what we know is that, um, the number of hunters and the number of turkeys harvested 
is effectively linear. So if you add, you know, one more turkey hunter, you shoot some percentage more turkeys, like mm-hmm. a, a tenth of a percent more turkeys, right? Right. Um, well, then you have to think about how those two ideas work in concert. You have long-term declines in recruitment and increased harvest. What that leads to is population size reductions as a general rule, which everyone across the, the generally across the range of the Eastern wild Turkey tends to acknowledge is happening that mm-hmm. we're seeing smaller over, you know, overarching population sizes. But the real question is what's the underlying driver of these changes? Um, as a general rule, uh, for every hundred turkey nests that are put on the landscape, somewhere between 70 and 80 of them fail. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're predated by something. Um, the, the female abandons the nest or whatever. Um, of those 20% that hatch, um, usually only two or three of those may actually have broods that come off to kind of a month old. Which, at which point they're usually, we think they have pretty good survival after that point. Mm-hmm. So effectively, from a, from a population biology standpoint, um, you can assume that for every 100 females that are out there on the landscape, um, you're not going to produce more than, say, five broods, maybe seven. Wow. That, that make it successfully to, you know, kind of, a month old or 28 days. Um, and that's what all of our, our data kind of shows. Mm -hmm. Um, in addition, um, to, to, and, and, you know, predation is a, is a nuanced topic. There's, there's lots of discussion. Um, there's, there's very little discussion in the scientific literature because it's kind of a solved problem. Um, and, and I say it's a solved problem in that, you know, we can't, you can't trap your way into more turkeys. It doesn't, it's, it's, there's, there's no kind of, at least to my knowledge, there's never been a study that says remove X number of predators, create X number of new birds. Um, right. some, of, some of the Delta waterfowl work that they have done has shown some for ducks that you can increase nest success, but the, you don't increase uh, the survival of the brood, so you actually don't get more waterfowl. Um, right. you know, and, and a lot of the predators that we have for turkeys are illegal to shoot or, or trap, right? I mean, you That's know. Right. Rat snakes, you know, um, great horned owls, um, ravens, you know, they're protected under, you know, various uh, uh, treaties and acts. So, mm-hmm. so um, we spend a lot of time looking at nest success. Um, but also on the other side, on the flip side of that coin is the, the hunter aspect of it. And, and nobody likes to be, and again, I'm not anti-hunting by any means. That's I mean, right. I'm going, I'm, I'm flying out to go turkey hunting tomorrow. Okay. Um, so, so yeah. I'm, I'm not, a, yeah, I mean. I'm not a non-hunter, but but I'm also a conservationist. My job is to look out for the bird. Um, politically, uh, there's been a, a lot of efforts historically to move turkey seasons earlier and earlier across the, the United States, especially yes. the southeastern United States. And we're all familiar with that, um, yes. especially those of us that work in, in state agencies, um, because hunters want to to hunt birds when they're gobbling and they're afraid that the birds get gobbled out. Is, is the and, and hearing turkeys gobble all of the science on human dimensions, that's the number one thing that hunters want to hear in the woods when they go hunting. They want sure. to hear turkeys go. Oh, yeah. um, but you run into to issues where um, 
if the timing of the hunting season is not um, linked cleanly to the timing of kind of when the peak reproductive effort is put forth, mm-hmm. then we may be inhibiting um, reproduction in the species um, to where birds either aren't getting bred early or they're not being bred by the the best males, so to speak. Um, sure. This is an area that that we're actively pursuing, looking at the the reproductive ecology of of wild turkeys on areas that are hunted heavily and some areas that are unhunted that mm-hmm. have absolutely no harvest at all. And we're looking at everything from you know genetic relationships to um, timing of nesting, uh, you know nesting chronology. Mm-hmm. Um, generally speaking, um, and, and I'll use this as an example um, in Louisiana. Um, which is about as south as you can get other than Florida, right? Okay, and maybe right. some parts of South Texas. Sure. Um, we usually see most of our, you know, nesting effort ramp up about the end of the first week, second week of April. Mm-hmm. And, and our hunting season in the state of Louisiana um, basically walks in between the 1st of April and about the 12th of April. Uh, mm-hmm. based on based on timing and when days fall um, sure. so so we're we feel like we're moderately close um some other states um and I, and this is not picking on anybody open significantly earlier than that mm-hmm. and latitudinally louisiana is pretty far south and, right. and a lot of the states that open earlier than mm-hmm. that are pretty far south some are open right now mm-hmm. um and you know we haven't got i mean we're tracking probably but uh, with the, the groups that I work with, we're easily tracking probably 350 hens right now. And not mm-hmm. a single one of us has a female on a nest yet, or even showing any reproductive activities. Sure. sure. So, and yet some states of, are, are hunting birds right now. So right, right now. Yes. And I'm yeah. not saying that the hunting, it, it's not, it's not a zero sum game, right? It's right. not stop hunting birds and suddenly we have turkeys everywhere because that's not my objective either. Um, right. What it is, is it's trying to find balance. Mm-hmm. where is the appropriate balance between the biology of the bird and the recreational activities of the hunters so that everybody wins? And, and that's really what we're focusing on. Um, but, but like I said, it's, you know, there's, it's the whole three legged or stool, except our stool for turkeys has 52 legs, <laughs> right. you know, cause I mean, you have to deal with, with predation issues. You have to deal with land issues. You have to deal with, is there available roosting habitat? Do we have good brooding habitat? Um, you know, yeah. are, are our hens actually being bred? When they're being bred, are they successfully laying eggs? Are the eggs fertile? You know, all, so, so there's a lot of things that can go into it. But we've spent probably the last 50 years studying the reproductive ecology side of the equation. Mm-hmm. And just now we're starting to link that information into the harvest side of the equation. So it's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty exciting time to, to be a turkey biologist and, and, you know, get to get to interact with hunters and landowners and managers on a pretty regular basis to, to, you know, try and answer some of these questions. Well, absolutely. And, and this is where managers, excuse me, this is where research can really, and, and that's, in my opinion, that's, that's the, one of the main jobs of research is to inform management, to inform how we manage species in terms of habitats or how we manage 
um, hunting season dates, timing, things like that. And, and I think that that's, that's one of the things that we really need to, to start focusing on is, is states opened turkey seasons based on a, a whole list of factors, and they opened them several years ago. And a lot of states haven't changed those season dates, opening, you know, opening dates or season links or, or bag limits. But as we learn more about the species, some states may have to take a hard look at how they're managing their resource. And, and that's, that's fine. I mean, that's, that's one of the jobs of management is, or excuse me, of research is to inform management, inform how states make decisions. And so I think this, these, is, there's, these are some important times where your research, what you're finding out with, with Dr. Chamberlain, may have some states ask some hard questions about how they're managing wild turkeys, and that's okay. Yeah, and you know, and you know, we get Mike and I try to be fairly active on social media because we get the opportunity to interact with with the basically I don't want to call them our constituents, but they are right the hunters mm -hmm. that sure. like turkey hunting. I mean, they're, they're but you know, we get the chance to to engage with them in in snippets of science and mm -hmm. and and that's been a really positive benefit for me i actually just responded to an email from a, a gentleman uh, up in iowa and missouri uh today asking about the the uh big windstorm that came through and some land management issues questions he had i never historically really kind of got that opportunity but the the whole idea of of us all kind of working together on what's best for the bird has created this really cool feedback loop mm -hmm. in that mm -hmm. we put out this is what we're finding and we get it out to obviously our agency stakeholders because mike and i as as you know as a professional biologist that, that works at a university um how do I say this without uh, outreach is not something that I'm paid to do, Frank. Right. Does that make sense? Um, I, like, like the, yes. the, the university does not care if I talk on a podcast or post something on Twitter or anything like that. But we do it because we're conservationists and we're in it for the species. Right. And we don't mind putting that effort out. Um, you know, my job is to do science mm -hmm. and to, to, to teach students to take my job later in life. And, and I love that. Um, but what it's done is it's it, our ability to get this information out to our constituents, you know, working with our state agency collaborators, um, working with private landowners, and then getting the information out to a broader audience has created this really great feedback loop where we're able to inform people almost in real time mm -hmm. what we see from a response uh, of these birds. And, and I think that that's a, that's a positive step because – Going back to what you said, when turkey regulations were initially set up, right, mm -hmm. when we started coming up with, okay, we're going to have this window of time to hunt, this bag limit, turkey populations were at peaks. Right. They were at the highest levels that they've ever been. We had the most, what I'll call the most liberal seasons that we've ever had. And we had fairly high reproduction at that time as well. Mm -hmm. Things have changed. And, yeah. and I don't mean to say that this is any sort of a death knell for turkeys. Um, we're we're going to have uh, turkeys forever. We're working hard to ensure that and everything like that. But, you know, we are seeing declines. Mm -hmm. And we are 
seeing increased harvest and we are seeing changing landscapes. And we, I am trying to be proactive because I'm not thinking about what turkey season or how many birds that I'm going to shoot this year. I'm thinking about what's the population size of wild turkeys going to be in the southeastern United States in 2035. Got it. Yes. And yeah. trying to, you know, so, so we, I guess the, the point I'm getting at here, you know, in a way too rambly way is that we're trying to project out expectation a lot farther than most people are thinking. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where I think our ability to interact with people and get this information out to people has really provided some benefits. Yes. Um, so that, right. that's kind of where I was going with that. Yeah. And, and that's the power, I think, of, of the social media and the access that folks have to people like you and to Dr. Chamberlain to understand the science, understand what's going on and why turkey populations may be declining and how season dates and bag limits may be playing a role in this so that if and when the time comes down the roads that states need to adjust or need to think about adjusting some things, hunters will already have an idea of why they're trying to do this. They're, yeah. they, they understand the science, and that is important that you get sportsmen buy-in when, you, when you're making any kind of management decisions, when you're talking about a game species, particularly one as popular as turkeys. Sportsman buy-in is huge from a state agency standpoint. So that's the importance, I think, of people being able to to know and understand the science and the mechanisms behind these things before states start to make these these management changes. Yeah, absolutely. Because and you know, it's probably important for the listeners to understand. You, know, I've never made a decision in my life that that affects how states like how management on the ground for turkeys occurs. That's not my job. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we, you know, I provide the science and then the, the, the state agency is the one that uses and compilates that, that information and they make the actual decisions. I mean, I've got opinions, obviously, right. and I've got science, but, but I'm not a decision maker in, in any, and, and no academic is no researcher makes decisions. We provide our interpretation of the data that we have based on what we know about the species of the birds based on other species that exist on the landscape. And then we provide it to basically our stakeholder constituency, which is usually the state wildlife agency. And they use that to make what they think is the best decision for the species. And, and what's nice is by integrating in the hunting community and the conservationists and everybody, um, you tend to get better decisions made when everybody's informed. So it's, it's a real, it's a real benefit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, kind of on those same same lines, I want to talk to you about and get you, get your thoughts on about a white paper that, that you and Dr. Chamberlain wrote last year. We were we were coming up, I think it was in April or May, perhaps right in the heart of the the, the COVID pandemic. There was a lot of hunters out in the field, and you guys wrote a white paper talking about the the impacts of the COVID pandemic on um, hunter participation. And harvest rates, and mm-hmm. I know that generated a lot of discussion. I know amongst amongst my colleagues. So, um, can you kind of briefly touch on that that white paper? Kind of what you guys discussed for the folks that haven't read it. Um, what kind of feedback do did you guys receive on that, positive or negative? And 
can you do you have any ideas of maybe what hunting pressure and, uh, and harvest rates last year, if that may have impact on on the birds this this spring? Sure. Yeah. No. So um, for the listeners out there, basically what happened was is we had a really weird perfect storm occur during the 2020 turkey season. Um, COVID, uh, kind of the the United States went into a quasi-lockdown, for lack of a better way of putting it, about the middle of March, Mm -hmm. which is about the time that hunting seasons open up for most of the southeastern United States, and shortly thereafter for most of the United States for wild turkeys. Um, In addition, other than maybe spring bear, um, there was no other hunting season open right um in the u.s at that time um so what we saw was you know unfortunately but what we saw was an entire cohort of our population that didn't have to go to work right for do because we didn't know what was going to happen with covid and and, you know science was still kind of all over the place so what we immediately saw on the places that we worked you know, you know, the national forest that I'm working on is significantly higher activity of hunting for turkeys. Yes. And and that kind of looking at some of the harvest data, just just basic harvest numbers that that states update on their websites, you know, weekly or whatnot. Mike and I got really concerned early on that. Um, we're in a situation where we have a pulse of hunting pressure that we know is linearly related to the number of birds that are harvested Mm -hmm. also at the same time we've got a situation where populations across the basically southeastern united states with eastern united states are showing evidence of decline in reproduction Mm -hmm. so we're we're going to we see more people in the woods that equates to more birds being harvested and we know for a fact there's less production so right. more birds are being taken less birds are being born and and our thought initially on that well this may be a recipe for a problem mm-hmm. so um what what we did was we drafted a um a thought piece um and it's it's still up uh, i've got it posted on my website at lsu and Obviously, if anybody wants to get it, they can email the show and, and I can send it to you guys and you can send it out. Um, there'll also be an article that we wrote on this exact topic um, in the next um, uh, Turkey Country magazine for NWTF. And I don't know when it'll be posted online, um, but probably pretty soon. But our concern was increased harvest, continued um, population productivity declines. What are the implications for that going to be? But on top of that, we found ourselves in a situation where our state and federal colleagues weren't allowed to go to work anymore. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, so now all of a sudden you've got increased harvest, which we, we assume was going to happen, reduced production, which we know is happening and land managers aren't allowed to manage land. Mm-hmm. So those kind of three things uh, kind of all came together. So what we did was we wrote, and this is, this is strictly an opinion piece based on our knowledge of the science of turkeys, right? right, um, right. What we saw was a lot, of, and, I'm, and again, I'm broadly categorizing. 
Sure. Um, most states, not all, but most states saw significant increases in hunting license sales associated with turkey season. Oh, yeah. Most states saw significant numbers of hunters in the woods. Absolutely. Can, it, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I can testify to that in Missouri. Just hunting um, on public land that I normally hunt on, it was, I mean, it was a, a, a significantly noticeable difference. Yeah, and if I'd have thought about it, Frank, I'd have called Raina and got numbers for Missouri. I don't know them all off the top of my head. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, but 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 most states saw a huge, basically a big pulse of additional hunters and new hunters for that matter. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, on top of that, um, we saw increased harvest. Now, many states saw increased harvest. You, you, obviously, we don't say that all states saw harvest because some states, um, Mississippi, for example, they seemed pretty flat. Like mm -hmm. they 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 harvested about the same number during 2020 as they had during 2019, and they're right along kind of their 10-year average, right? Mm -hmm. um, but other states, uh, Georgia, Alabama, North Carolina, they they uh, they saw some pulses. Um, you know, 10 or 15 percent. I want to say that Louisiana saw about uh, about an 8 percent increase in harvest. Um, Indiana saw an increase in harvest. Um, so, so, you know, but some states were flat. So I don't want you to think that just everybody was up 80%, right? right. Um, but, so now we've got the situation where we're shooting more birds during the COVID year because more people are in the woods. And at the same time, we know that production is going down and we know that no land management is going to get done. So no prescribed burnings being put on the landscape, no timber management's being put on the landscape, you know, mm -hmm. maintenance issues that we deal with in national forests aren't being done. You know, there's there's not as much happening. Sure. So that got us thinking, what might be the implications this year? So we're thinking, going back to last year, we're thinking, what might be the implications in 2021? Mm -hmm. And what might be the implications in 2022? And our our initial thought, which I don't think that I've I have not changed my initial thought, but I don't think I've changed on this, is that I think probably what's going to happen is, generally speaking, um, this year I don't expect turkey harvest numbers to change precipitously. Like mm -hmm. we're not going to go from shooting ten thousand to one thousand, right? right. Um, but I do think that we're going to see some declines because in twenty twenty. We were shooting birds, two-year-olds being the predominant turkey that's harvested, right? right, um, right. In 2020, we were shooting the 2018 hatch. Right. In 2021, this year, we're going to be shooting the 2019 hatch. Yes. So we've already removed more birds during the 2020 harvest. Even if production stayed the same, we would have figured the population of, of harvestable males is probably a little lower. Right. Mm -hmm. Just right. carryover may not have been as much. What I wonder about is going to be 2022. Ah. Because those birds were what would have been hatched in 2020. Right. At a time where male harvest was increased in a lot of places, which reduces male availability to females. Mm -hmm. Potentially can you know retard or impact productivity. Um, timing of productivity. Um, sure. In addition, no land management got done in 2020, right? Yep. I mean, you know, and don't get me wrong. Um, 
I understand that some people, you know, they have a thousand acres and they're still able to go out and mess around another thousand acres and do their fire and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but I'm all, I'm thinking more about all the public wildlife management areas that the public use, all the national forest lands that the public access. Sure. Nothing got done on those two years ago or last year. Sure. Well, we know that that's going to have impacts going down the road for where turkeys nest what areas they're available to use because turkeys don't like to walk through fences of brush, right? They like right. things to be more open. So, so our concern is basically that the combined impact of basically last year and this year may, uh, maybe the term I'm looking for is reset the baseline population status mm-hmm. of wild turkeys, of Eastern wild turkeys to be a little bit lower than it was in the start of 2020. Because we will have harvested more birds because we had more hunters and we will have impacted reproduction because we weren't able to do land management. Right. So the kind of conglomerate of all of those topics makes me think that where we were at on the not to get overly scientific, but where we were at on the population axis may have dropped down a little bit. Now, the question is, how far did it drop? And and I I don't have a good answer for that. And nobody will for a few years. Um, So, you know, and I I don't want to equate this to deer because too many people think turkeys are deer, but I will. Okay. Um, Okay. If you think about the impacts that something like CWD has on deer, right? Mm -hmm. If, if CWD knocks back a deer population immediately, managers step in and say, we need to do something or sit back or, or episodic hemorrhagic disease knocks back an area. Managers say, okay, we're going to restrict doe harvest for a couple of years, or mm-hmm. we're going to, we're going to restrict male harvest and go to a quota where we're only going to shoot one bird or, or one deer or two deer or whatever it is, instead of the three or eight or 22 or depending on what state you are, how many deer you can shoot. Right. Right. Yeah. Nobody's made that decision for turkeys. Gotcha. Yes. Not a single state agency that I'm familiar with, and I'm not criticizing them, but nobody said there's a potential impact here. Should mm-hmm. we think about being more conservative if the day, you know, maybe saying, hey, let's pull back a little bit till we see what the impact's going to be? Um, we, you know, and, and the reason this is important is, or at least to me, as a, as a conservationist and a hunter and researcher is mm-hmm. turkeys are the only species in the continental United States that we hunt only upland game bird species. Okay. That mm-hmm. we hunt right in the middle of their breeding, like at the beginning of their breeding season. That's right. They're yeah. it. That's it. Yeah, so so yeah, if going... harvest it has, sorry, break. if harvest has any impact on productivity long-term, we're going to see it in these two years abundantly. Gotcha. And yeah. so my big concern on all of this, and I will get to, yeah, you, you could jump in a second is what's 2021 going to, or sorry, what is 2022 going to look like? Right. Because right. it would have relied on two year olds born in 2020 and juvenile males, Jake's born in 2021. Right. So, so yeah, perhaps hunters, and get an indication of that this spring just on the number of jakes they see out and about that may give so we may we may start to see some indication some preliminary indication this spring by the number of jakes that we're seeing on the landscape is that correct yes 
I would, uh, yes, I would say so. And, and I'll, I'll caveat, I'll even add to that and that most of our capture operations this year, most, not all, but most um, that we had in uh, most of our sites, um, we were, we were skewed towards adult females mm-hmm. that we were catching and not juvenile females. That's just, we saw it. I have, I'm not making any stronger inferences off that, but I think that once we start looking at harvest numbers this year and what hunters are seeing in the field, that they're not seeing as many jakes and we're not harvesting as many birds, then, you know, there's some things we can start ta- having this discussion in the future on what might we want to do to try and rein things in a little bit. Now they may not need to be reined in though, too. And that's the other side of this COVID coin. Take a state like Texas. Mm-hmm. All right. So we've been talking about our Eastern subspecies right now. Um, all right. What also happened is states initiated no travel orders, right? Mm -hmm. During COVID. Absolutely. Turkey, non-resident Turkey license sales in the state of Texas were down somewhere like 85%. Wow. So a lot of turkeys did not get shot in Texas last year. Well, yeah. Because there were no hunters that came because Texas is a it's a destination state for people Absolutely. to come shoot Rios, right? I mean, don't get me wrong. There's tons of hunters in Texas, but it's a destination state. And for perspective, um, we've been doing a uh, working with Texas Parks and Wildlife. We've got a huge banding project out there. We've banded a few thousand birds. Mm-hmm. Um, usually we get about a hundred and about a hundred band recoveries a year um, mm-hmm. out of the state of Texas. Last year, I think I got four. Wow. Wow. So, so that tells me that a lot fewer turkeys were shot in Texas. So I think that, and, and I'll, I'll end this discussion with this. I think that our Eastern birds, the response for our Eastern birds, as opposed to the response for our Rios and our Merriams and Goulds being a lesser concern for our Rios and our Merriams are going to be much different because Eastern birds basically People couldn't travel. They were restricted to hunt in their state. More effort got put into their state for hunting. Yes. You know, management wasn't done. You know, population density is less in the Rio and the Merriam's kind of regions. And Mm -hmm. all the people that traveled to hunt Western birds didn't travel as much. So, So I think we may see different responses. But, I mean, this is also one of those things where where time will tell and, and buying a, you know, being a turkey biologist, um, you know, when we talk about long-term trajectories, I admittedly tend to be more conservative because I want to ensure recreational activity in 2035. I'm not thinking about it next year. So, right. well, that's the, so, that's the long and short of the COVID thoughts. So, so this is a fascinating, this is a fascinating subject. And it's, it, and, and when you guys wrote the paper, I passed it around to my colleague and said, Hey, take a look at this. This is some fascinating well, and I applaud you guys. Be, and and Brett, I would normally not applaud you. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. I applaud you guys uh, for your forward thinking on this and thinking about this perfect storm of not only more hunters in the field, but when they were in the field and the the lack of management that's going on. Plus, looking at the differential effects, I think of a state like Kansas. They they stopped selling non-resident permits after a certain date. And Kansas, as where we hunted together, is a destination state for a lot yep. of people because they have Rios there. They've got Easterns. They, they've got abundant turkey populations in some places. Now, they've seen a decline where they've actually reduced their, their limit to one bird. But still, 
and, and Nebraska, I think, is in the same boat. So I applaud you guys for for your paper, for your forward thinking, and and, and getting this discussion out there. Because if states are going to start to to make some decisions, people need to have hunters and sportsmen, as we talked about earlier, need to have some background of, hey, what? Why are we talking about this? Well, think about 2020. What happened? This perfect storm. So. You guys, I applaud you guys for for your forward thinking on this. On this yeah, and in the perfect world, Frank, and you know, I won't lie. In the perfect world, I hope I'm wrong. Yes, I do. I, I mean, I do. I, I mean, I you do. know, there, there's no doubt in my mind that, you know, if if I'm wrong, if our because this these are opinions based on the state of science as we mm-hmm. see it, right? Yeah, right. If I'm wrong, and there's no impact, that's the best situation for everybody, right? Sure. Populations are stable. Everything stays roughly status quo. There's no need to to do anything that, you know, tends to a little bit more from a conservative management standpoint. And I'm perfectly, you know, I don't get in trouble for being wrong. Right. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. perfectly comfortable with being three years from now being, hey, there wasn't an impact. But if we don't broach this topic now and at least put it onto people's radar. In three years, whenever a state agency has to make a decision and the decision will seem drastic, if, well, we need to cut, you know, we feel like we need to reduce bag limits from three to two, for, just as a for instance. And, you know, I'm not picking on any state here because we saw a population decline due to this. That's the worst possible scenario to be in. Yes. But at least we saw it coming and mm-hmm. we could start to address it early as opposed to not seeing it coming and not addressing it at all early enough and you're not getting the opportunity to address it at all so i, I hope i'm wrong yeah i mean i really do yeah, so yeah. not not just personally but you know yeah no but i mean <laughs> professionally i hope yeah. that what we think may happen doesn't happen right right but but the other side of the coin is we're i'm in the position where i if something might occur i need to be the one that says it right right that's I, the I, way that i, I look I, at it Yes, absolutely. And I'm glad you did. Um, so before I, I let you go, I want to get your thoughts on management for, for a while, sure. of course, because this is a, a largely management based podcast. But before before we talk about management and what your research has has found to to inform management, I want to ask um, a little bit more on, on a research side. Um, with, with all these GPS collars on on hens, and with what you and Dr. Chamberlain are finding out about breeding dynamics um, spatially, uh, with with gobblers how they space themselves out across the landscapes and how hens move, have you found anything in your research that might help hunters a little bit be more successful? So some behaviors of gobblers that they do that hunters may be able to key on to be more successful this spring? Anything like that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I mean, so I'll, I'll say the first thing that comes to mind, which is yeah. what I tell everybody. It's you have to get away from the road. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I say that on, on primarily on public lands is that um, we did some really neat uh, research. A uh, former graduate student of mine, Elena Garretts, who's now um, – she's the i think she's the assistant upland game program lead for wisconsin but she may have been promoted um i'm not i'm not sure yet because uh last time i checked she was doing like 19 different jobs um but um, elena had had, was a graduate student of mine in south carolina and she did some really cool stuff looking at 
how hunters move in the landscape. So she mm-hmm. GPS, I mean, we, you know, in a collaborative study, you know, we GPS thousands of hunters out there on the landscape and, and looked at where they move. And the average hunter goes about 125 yards from the road. So the first thing, if you want to find turkeys is get away from the roads because turkeys tend not to like roads that much um, mm-hmm. because there's all kinds of disturbance on them. Um, here's what I, I will say. Um, one of the most common questions I get from hunters even now I've probably got two or three of them in my inboxes. I had turkeys on my property all winter and now they're gone. Um, and I tell folks that they're not gone. They're just doing other things. Um, Mm -hmm. most of the time, um, whenever we look at how these birds move, these males, they have a fixed movement pattern, Frank, Mm-hmm. Which, which I think you would be familiar with, with all of the research and science that you've done. You know, critters tend to do the same things on a fairly regular basis, right? Sure. Yeah. But, but what happens is, is that the pattern, like the, you know, they they go in a circle and they come back. The pattern shifts, and sometimes they go, you know, a thousand meters one direction, and then they may do that five or six days in a row, and then they may stop and go the other direction a thousand meters, and if the hunters are only catching them in one spot and they see them three or four days and then they disappear, these birds will disappear for two or three weeks and just head off to the left is kind of the joke that we make. Um, what I'll say from, from the GPS data we get is that every bird's an individual and all the decisions that these birds make, they make based on what they see around them. So we have had birds on the opening day of hunting season that have spent their entire, the entire hunting season within 150 meters of the same spot they were on the opening morning where they roosted at, and they never leave. And that's a bird that's not gobbling. Mm -hmm. That's a bird that's not making any noise. It's walking around in an itty bitty little circle because it's smart and it's old and it knows if it makes noise, it gets shot. Right. Um, We have seen other birds that have got bumped in the morning on the first day of hunting season and moved 10 miles <laughs> and left. And they want no part of that place. They want no part of that and they are done. And and they move off someplace and then they then they hole up and they hang out. Um so probably the, the probably the most uh compelling piece of information I, I could say is that you know for the hunters is you're hunting an individual. You're not hunting a flock. And, and sometimes, uh, you know, sometimes individuals do really weird things. Deer get patterned because deer tend to follow the same paths every day. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, they're, they're real easy to pattern. You know, they get up, they go about their business. They feed in the same spots. Turkeys don't do that. They, they tend to wander pretty aimlessly a lot of times. Mm-hmm. And especially for our eastern birds, so you know, for our we- the western birds that are more roost site limited, mm-hmm. that you know, you think Rios and Merriams, they tend to mm-hmm. be ghouls. They tend to be a lot more likely to come back to the same spot and roost at night. Yep. Rios, it's not like just in any tree will do, but in a lot of cases for your easterns, they just kind of wander out there like, okay, I'm done. This is where I'm gonna cram- you know crash out for the night. So, cool. so. Treat them like individuals. Don't treat them like flocks because the one that was in the flock yesterday may not be there tomorrow. Got it. Got it. That's <laughs> that's great advice. And, and and the reason I wanted to ask you that question 
is because I think that is I, I think that that scientific research and, and I'm biased because I, I, I think I, I'm, a, I'm a scientist and a researcher at heart and I, and I think that, that is that it's great information but I think that as sportsmen and hunters at large tend to overlook uh, scientific publications or scientific research and apply those findings to help them be a better hunter. I know the research <laughs> that I've done on prairie chickens has helped me be a better prairie chicken hunter because I know I, I've determined, you know, just over time sort of how they use the environment. My research on Bob White's has helped me to become a better Bob White hunter. I know when we, we went to Arizona, buddy of mine and I went to Arizona, um, quail hunting, and I looked at some scientific literature to kind of get an idea of how these gambles quail use the environment, and it helped us quite a bit. So I wanted to ask you that question because I think the research and, and researchers like you are a valuable piece of information to help hunters become more successful, and I wanted to encourage more folks to do that. Oh, yeah, and, you know, I think that, you know, Mike Chamberlain, my colleague at UGA, he's he does a Turkey Tuesday every week, and um, it's been it's been extremely popular. You know, yeah. he and I, you know, we talk about content fairly regularly. Sometimes I give him some stuff, and and he uses it. Sometimes he emails me for stuff, and it's all based on the science that we're doing. And scientific literature is dense, yeah, um, intentionally so. Um, it's because you know those us academics, you know, that's that's basically the currency of our realm is the the scientific publications and the management you know applications of those um that we do but i think that you know some of the things that we've had the opportunity to to do by interacting with the the hunting community via the turkey tuesdays and facebook posts and you know great organizations that i work with uh you know like national turkey federation obviously but um stephen spurlock with chasing 49 um mm -hmm. is fantastic and has done a great job getting information um, um out there slate and glass has done great. Um, Mossy Oak is, is putting a lot of the science out that we put out. Uh, Nomad mm -hmm. Outdoors um, yes. ha, has done a great job. Uh, you know, Jason Hart has done a bunch of uh, podcasts and um, uh, kind of the Facebook lives with us. Um, I think those the the uh, cocktails and conservations that we did uh, with with uh, NWTF and then the turkey talks that we've been doing with LSU Ag Center. I'm actually doing one next week. Um, kind of like a preseason breakdown. Being able to to make ourselves, you know, the the professors that study the bird more accessible, um, and has really supported making the research more accessible. And I'm just like you. Like whenever I went elk hunting in Colorado last year, mm -hmm. I read every paper there was on elk movement ecology and elevation and habitat yeah. use yeah. because I wanted. It didn't do me a dang bit of good, <laughs> right. but, but but I still wanted to know what I was getting into. And and I think yeah. that sometimes what we do in support of the conservation and hunting community for this bird is lost because it gets buried in the literature that most people don't read. Yes. They, they don't Absolutely. even know it exists. Absolutely. So, so I think that, you know, the, the little things we do to push this stuff out is, is great. And, and I, and I enjoy doing it. So. Yeah. Oh, great. Well, um, so we're going to wrap up here pretty quickly, but I wanted to get sure. your thoughts on management because the research that you guys are doing uh, and, and the the fine scale at which you are able to study this bird with your GPS collars uh, really help inform management. So Mike Chamberlain was on uh, with Matt and Adam last week, 
Yeah. So they they posed him a few questions related to management. And one of the things that um, they asked is if if he owned a farm, if he owned a piece of ground, say it's 50 to 500 acres, somewhere in there, where, where you're not really controlling the movements of an entire flock. You don't have thousands of acres, but you're like a normal landowner in the in the southeast. And you were really concerned about turkeys. You really want to promote turkeys on your property. Based on your research findings, how would you go about managing your property? What what would you what what techniques would you use? Let's let's think about it as a typical southeast piece of ground. It's got a little bit of open land, some hardwood timber, maybe some pine timber. How would you? I'll, I'll even I'll do you one better. Let's think oh, about good. it as a mid a Midwest piece of land. Let's do it. All right, so I'll talk about what I do on my little farm in Illinois. Oh, that's right. Um, yes, I remember you've got some ground in Illinois. Yeah, yeah. so I, yeah. we've got some some legacy, uh, you know, fa- farm ground in Illinois um, from from my family. It's in East Central Illinois, uh, uh, about an hour south of Champaign-Urbana area. Um, just for perspective, and it's mm-hmm. it's effectively hardwoods um, with agricultural fields. Um, you know, interspersed within it. Um, and, and I do manage it. We do not have, uh, very abundant turkeys in that, that area. They, they do occur, but they're, they've only recently kind of crept in, which kills mm-hmm. me. Um, of course. Yeah. Um, so, so here's what I do. So, so for, for the average person out there, most people are not going to own enough property to manage for wild turkeys by themselves. Right. Um, the, the average land holdings, you know, 30 or 40 acres. Um, most of the time these birds will use, you know, they'll, they'll move a thousand, uh, 1500 meters a day. So they're across your property by, by the morning. Right. Um, they, they may have a, an annual range. That's a couple of square miles. Mm-hmm. So you're just a, you're a, a pocket in the middle of it. So, sure. so on the farm, um, on the farmland, we probably have, a. I'll pick the, we got one place that's a little hundred acre plot. Um, it's, uh, got a, uh, county road on the North, uh, runs the entire North boundary of it. It's got a pond and a Creek on it. Um, it's where we like to go deer hunt every year. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, it's probably about, uh, ballpark, about 50% agricultural fields, mm-hmm. um, and about, uh, 30% timbered and about 20%, uh, grass. Um, so about about half of that grass we've moved over to uh, CP, uh, CRP. So we had CP2 and CP33 in there mm-hmm. um, on the borders for wildlife and that kind of stuff, and taking it out of production. And I've got some hay fields out there. Um, sure. Okay. So here's where I here's what I focus on. So um, even though it's in the Midwest and most people treat prescribed fire as more of a southern pine thing, um, mm-hmm. we try and burn it every two or three years. And what, uh, what I'm trying to do whenever I burn it, um, it could be a little slower of a rotation because we're not as far south. Um, so, uh, what I try to do when I burn it is basically I'm trying to clear a, a ground clutter because I like to take down trees to create openings, um, mm-hmm. in the woods. So I get early successional herbaceous growth, both inside my timbered areas, but also, uh, on the edges. Mm-hmm. Um, we do a lot of stuff with field border edges on our property, um, 10 to 15 feet wide, uh, pl- basically planted in, um, you know, kind of a standard Midwestern mix of, uh, up under bases, you know, back on Susan, that kind of stuff, um, mm-hmm. that we, uh, we tend to mow, uh, every other year and then burn about every fourth year. Um, mm-hmm. I do a little bit of restricted timber harvest on my property and that's primarily to, uh, do canopy openings. Um, 
one of the big things that I spend an awful lot of time with though, is removal of exotics. Um, Mm -hmm. in that I get a lot of, uh, you know, just junk that grows up in there. And, and I don't like most of the exotic under, you know, kind of woody understory, which is what we kind of started out with. And the reason Mm -hmm. for that is, is that, um, Turkey see that stuff like a fence and, um, they don't like walking through low lying woody brush cover because they don't know what's on the other side of it. Um, feathering, uh, a lot of things that we've been working on now is edge feathering, um, where we're dropping down, um, some of our trees on, um, some of the edges of our little riparian spits where Mm -hmm. we push those out. And then, um, you know, I I have to keep Osage orange out of there. Um, but, uh, we, we, we push those, you know, we push those out and then we're going back in and we're overseeding them with, uh, early successional warm season natives, Mm-hmm. So that we get kind of this really nice small transition from uh, a hardwood dominated forested area, old growth forest area, into this kind of early successional kind of wing that that goes out. And we've just started to put some of those in on a couple of our pieces of property, and though they've been uh, they've been really successful thus far. I mean, we were kicking woodcock out of them this year. Um, oh, as they great. were migrating through. Yeah, oh. which was great. Um, yeah. But I think that the most important thing that I'll say is it doesn't matter what you do as long as you're doing something. Sure. Um, yeah. and, and, I, and I mean that. Um, most people think, well, I've only got 30 acres. I've only got 50 acres. I've only got 20 acres. Excuse me. Um, I really can't do anything to help turkeys because they use such a larger area. But that 10 or 12 acres that you're able to put a fire on or able to take out, you know, non-native species or put into, you know, one of the multiple conservation reserve programs or, or even just do a little bit of timber canopy opening, that may be the spot where that hen happens to choose to nest and be successful next year. And, you know, it may not, you know, feel like you're doing much, but as long as you're doing something, you know, you're helping. Um, in, In those, in these hardwood areas, for me, it's, it's all about, creating that that transitional edge habitat though frank that's really what i focus on um is is anything you can do to to go from field edge to woodland and and create something in the middle um even i mean even running a disc around it is is going to be is going to be proactive so that's you know that's kind of where i'm at if Um, we were talking about the southeast band burn it burn it set that successional stage back and keep it open yeah. in in midwest hardwoods um anything we can do for for edges is something that i try to do for myself i want to so, jump yeah. in here fellas because i just can't help myself when you started talking management i was like turn the volume Please. Up. i want to get in there so <laughs> i hear this i hear this theory out there when people talk about edge feathering or planting the cp38 the field borders that you're creating highways for predators to run and have easier access to finding prey species. I want to get your thoughts on that. Um, you know, there are, so, so let, if we're talking strictly about turkeys and what we're really getting into is probably the four, the four big ones that most people think about are raccoons, bobcats, um, coyotes and possums. Um, probably raccoons and possums, you know, predating nests, you know, eating the eggs and then bobcats and coyotes predating the hens, you know? Um, and, and a lot of people have basically, a lot of science has shown that, you know, coyotes are coursing species, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they get out, they cover a lot of area really, really fast. Um, you know, 
raccoons historically people had thought that they searched out turkey nests um you know most of the evidence we've got to date is it's just kind of happenstance that they happen to run across one of them they're going to yep. eat it sure right um yep. bobcats they're they'll eat eggs but they're in it for the hens right mm-hmm. um yes to, to answer your question Adam, you you absolutely could have some interactions with predators that run edges of fence lines and tree lines and all that kind of stuff but i'd rather create habitat and let the birds sort it out than have a hard edge that goes directly from an agricultural field to an old growth woodlot because then you're not doing good for anybody i should have prefaced before that that i do not have that thought process and your answer exactly why i always tip my cap to researchers like you guys because i feel like you get it and and i just just uh, i feel like your information is like drinking out of a fire hose so i appreciate your uh i appreciate the answer there yeah absolutely you know because any habitat that you create is is good habitat and yeah. sorry, we're getting we're, we're trying to get some GPS tags out in Kentucky and my phone's beeping. I apologize. If <laughs> listeners heard that. Yeah. Um, but but any any habitat you create is good habitat. And I would say, how about this to, to to maybe wrap this little part up? I would tell someone that said that exact question to me. You don't need to be worried about whether or not you're creating an area that a predator might find a turkey nest in what you need to be worried about is are you creating an area that a turkey might want to put a nest in yeah 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 so and i think that's the take home that i would want to want to that i would tell people yeah and and that that's that's excellent advice brett and, and i think there's some perspective that that needs to to come in that in in the the farmland habitat where you're talking about in Iowa, Illinois, where, where farm prices are through the roof, where, where ground is super productive, man, we can't expect most landowners to do whole field grass practices. It's no. not going to happen because it's just too too lucrative to farm it. So these borders and field strips are going to be the way we're going to get early successional habitat on the ground. And I'm glad absolutely. you talked about that. You know, absolutely. And, you know, at some point, we'll get you guys out there, and you can actually look at what I do. Because, I mean, I, I'm the – I'll be honest with you. I'm the epitome of small land management, or at least I'm trying to be. Because I don't own a bunch of land. I mean, I'm not I'm not some – you know, I don't, I don't own 50,000 acres that I can do whatever I want. I'm doing it on a 98-acre yeah. piece of property and another one that's 100, but only about 40 of it's in timber. So so I'm I'm basically – Every the every guy out there trying to do management for turkeys on his property, even though I study him professionally, I'm I'm the one trying to solve the exact same problem. How do I create the type of vegetative communities that these birds are going to want to use when all I can control is what's inside my little fence? Right. So right. no, it, yeah, and it's 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 a tough it's a tough discussion to have, but it's a lot of fun to talk about it. So. Well, let me say, um, and, and Matt, or excuse me, Adam, if you want to wrap up, I, I, I want to say this has been a fascinating discussion from the scientific standpoint and from just being able to reconnect Brett with you to kind of reminisce about some of the. Oh, I got to so we got to We can't we cannot end this without a fun story, Frank, of okay. you and I. So okay. I'll tell this one. All right. Do you remember the 2002 Bismarck 
TWS meeting you and I roomed at. Yes, Sharp Tailed Grouse, absolutely. So, so here's a story for everybody. So, Frank and I were were um, rooming together as graduate students in Bismarck, North Dakota, at a wildlife society meeting, and we uh, wanted to go out and go sharp tailed grouse hunting. Now, we were we were broke graduate students at that absolutely, time, Frank. Yes, and yes. we did not have dogs. Nope. Or basically all we had was shotguns and a pair of boots. And now all the faculty, like all of our major professors, they had their fancy dogs and their dog trailers and, oh, and yeah. all this kind of jazz with them, you know, and they, they had maps and GPS and they had people that had been scouting for them and everything. So they knew where they were going to hunt sharp tails. Uh-huh. So Frank, and it was you and me and it was Jimmy and who else did we go with? Um, oh, oh there's one other guy. Well, there's four of us. Yeah. And so we went out and went to a public walk-in hunting area with with no hunting dogs and basically four guys with shotguns. And we were out there about an hour and 45 minutes and shot four limits of sharp tails, basically just <laughs> flushing them and running up on them and shooting them. And yeah. we show up back to we show back up at the TWS uh, conference and all the other faculty and, and all the guys with their fancy over and unders and their, their 18 dogs loaded in the trailer hadn't shot a damn sharp tail of one of them. <laughs> and the two of us show up with – I still have the pictures, Frank, of yeah, us sitting uh, in the back of my too. black dog. We show yeah. up with a full, a full brace of sharp tails, yeah. and we end up cleaning them in the bathroom of the mm-hmm. tub of the yes. hotel. Yeah. Yeah. We were staying yeah. there. And yeah. The night before we left, there were feathers and stuff everywhere. And I still bring that up to our major professor whenever uh, whenever he gets a little bit sassy about the yeah. fact that you and I were able to shoot limits of sharp tails with nothing but like 870 pumps oh, and yeah. no dogs. So. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We were just out there just blind, walking around and just kind of using like hey the lee side of a hill is kind of windy let's go check that out you know something like that and man it worked it worked we we had that was probably one of the most fun hunts i've ever been on because it was just a straight ground pound and see what we can do type of hunt. it was was a ball yeah it was that was a great time and i had yeah i still remember that 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 was the first sharp tail that else i'd ever seen was one yeah me too Yeah, it was it was a good time, and, and and so it's been great to reconnect to talk about those things, but to also follow your career as you've as you've gone from from someone working on on whitetail deer that, that I knew back in grad school to someone was one of the nation's top quail or excuse me wild turkey researchers. It's it's been fascinating to, to watch. Hey, buddy, you're no slouch yourself. Well, the stuff that you're doing in Missouri and the the work that you guys have been putting in and. and you know, looking at quail restoration and land management and all that. Don't, don't, don't let the listeners think that you're not as engaged in this as I am. Yeah, I mean, I you've been on the ground for almost 20 years now. Out there. Yeah, yeah, I know so. it's crazy. It's crazy <laughs> to think about, but, but yeah, thank you so much, Brett, for for joining us today and uh, and the knowledge you've imparted and and um, I really want to stay in touch and and I, I know the listeners will will get a ton out of this. So so thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, tell the listeners that they're, you know, I'm a state employee. You guys can contact me anytime. Um, but probably the most direct route is, uh, and I'll say this, or Adam, you can say it if you want to, but, you know, they can typically find us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. I'm, I'm pretty available, uh, you know, through most of those uh, most of the time. What, so. what are those handles? Yeah. So on Facebook, it's just Brett Collier. Um, and, 
uh, Twitter and Instagram is uh, both uh, at Dr. Shortspur, D-R-S-H-O-R-T-S-P-U-R. And that's a really funny name because it's, uh, it was actually came up with a friend of mine at Texas A&M named Kevin. We were trying to come up with a funny Twitter name, and now that's kind of stuck with me. So, <laughs> well, there you but go. yeah, and if anybody wants to follow up or ask any questions about this, you know, there, please feel free to reach out. Um, and uh, if there's any, uh, you know, information that I didn't provide that somebody wants to ask, that's what I'm here for. So they can certainly contact me at their, at their leisure. Awesome. We appreciate you coming on. Absolutely. Absolutely.